Welcome to the founders of Web3 series by Outlier Ventures and me, your host, Jamie Burke. Together, we're going to meet the entrepreneurs, their backers, and the leading policymakers that are shaping Web3. Together, we're going to try to define what is Web3, explore its nuances, and understand the mission and purpose that drive its founders. If you enjoy what you hear, please do subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission that is Web3. Great. So today I want to welcome Jake Brookman of CoinFund onto the show. They describe themselves as a disruptive investor. They've been around since 2015, which probably makes them an OG of sorts. I've definitely found the thought leadership that they've done incredibly insightful. There's huge technical depth in their team and certainly in Jake himself with a background in computer science and programming as well as quantitative analytics. And there's a real kind of passion and intellectual curiosity there. So I'm really looking forward uh, to talking today. Awesome. Thank you for having me, Jamie. And it's been a little while. It's a pleasure to uh, reconnect with you. So maybe before we go into CoinFund and your thesis and areas of activity, just to kind of summarize your background, you originally started out in Triton doing research. You uh, have done technical product leadership at Amazon, primarily in ad tech. And you've also uh, got a background in kind of quant trading. So you've kind of got a, a really interesting blend of, of product, kind of un, an understanding of the capital markets component, uh, as well as the technical research. Yeah, um, I, I definitely have an interesting background. I like to think of myself as a, as a bit of a, of a dual brain person. So I've always been you know, pretty technical, pretty good at math. But there's this other part of my brain, which actually draws me to you know, make art and music and stuff. And I've been just doing that all my life. I'm sort of lucky in that, um, you know, I don't have to do the creative things as a, you know, as a full-time job. I can focus on the on the technology for, for work, but it's been super rewarding to have that those other aspects. And also now that's changing. It's starting to turn out that I'm, I'm actually able to sell some of my art using some of these technologies that we're going to talk about today. Yeah. And so, and I think you know, that's what really makes your perspective quite unique in the space. And one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on, obviously the, this series is really focused on understanding uh, the founders that are kind of driving and defining Web3, but also the people that are backing them. And I think, you know, you have this really interesting perspective, both as an individual and as a fund in that, you know, you're you're heavily involved in the venture side and very actively mm-hmm. involved in advising and supporting projects. And then you also kind of have this, this like liquid markets um, side to the business. So could you maybe explain a little bit about how, um, how you kind of divide um, CoinFund in that way, or even if it's not a division at all, it's maybe something more. Similar. Yeah, no, this is a great question. And I, look, I mean, so our team, before we even launched the first fund in 2015, most of most of the, uh, the folks on our team were in blockchain before that. Like I got my probably my first Bitcoin in I want to say November 2011, right? And, and and most of our team has been around. And I think what we what we have been asking ourselves for many years is like, okay, this is a, this looks like a new asset class. How do you make sense of it? How do you become an investor? What is the right way to invest? And what it turns out is that you know, blockchain networks, which are the core of our of our thesis at CoinFund, you know, they they look like venture in the beginning, and then later they look like 
liquid assets and almost like public assets and public networks with, right. with public governance, right? And so this presents a great challenge for investors. First of all, it constrains traditional models to invest in only certain stages. Like if you're a VC, you're going to be doing only that early, early, early stage stuff. If you're a hedge fund, you're only going to be doing the, the liquid stuff. And really, the you know, what we found over now, geez, it's kind of scary to think like over over five years or close to five years of, of looking at this industry is that you really want to be following these networks as they grow across their life cycle. And we call that network life cycle investing. And so, you know, what we did with kind of our main fund today is we structured in a way that it could do, it could do investing across those things. And that basically comes in three flavors. In the, in the beginning, you, you invest very much a, like an early stage uh, venture fund, right? Like you're buying uh, illiquid assets. You're often buying equity. Sometimes you're buying convertible notes. At the very late stage of the process, you're trading, you know, almost like big cap liquid assets like Bitcoin and Ether or whatever network you invested in early that grew, right? And in the middle, as an investor who is involved, you want to be actively engaging your networks. You want to be giving them liquidity. You want to be staking. You want to be maybe even running you know, supply side hardware. And what this does is it increases your overall probability of long-term success. And you as an investor can, can fairly easily do that um, in a certain sense, right, in, in blockchain. And so I think what we've, we, what we've done at CoinFund in, in, a, in a big way is we synthesize thinking around like, how do you combine all of those dif- disciplines? Because traditionally they're very different. How do you combine the financial knowledge with the technical knowledge? How do you combine the sort of anarchist or crypto anarchist nature of a lot of the people in the space with the idea that, you know, they really need to talk to investors who are fairly traditional at the end of the day, right? And those two groups of people have to have a shared language and come together to really make this work. And so, you know, I think, I, I think now for 2020, we actually are launching, uh, we launched our, our third fund, which is led, led by Seth Gins, and that's a liquid strategy. So that's looking kind of like later in the, um, in the life cycle. And then uh, later this year, we're going to raise a pure venture fund, uh, which we'll look at earlier in the, in the life cycle. Great. And obviously you guys have build, been building out these um, service areas, which are described as supply side services, you know, keeping really kind of bootstrapping the networks that you're involved in and something called grass fed network. And we're not going to go into too much detail about this because I know you feel that it's a subject that's been covered um, almost to death in the industry. Um, so we're, yeah. we're going to go into NFTs a little bit more, but it, it might be good to just summarize those activities, why you think it's important that, that uh, an early stage venture investor and, and somebody that's bridging into these later stages is, is, is doing more than just deploying capital. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, so like very quickly, this just um, grass-fed network is kind of a, a name that we use internally for that middle stage of the network life cycle where we feel like, hey, you know, as an investor, we want to go into a network and, and, and really actively participate. So it, these activities might include, you know, staking some of the portfolio networks that we hold or whose assets we hold. It might be uh, helping to bootstrap those networks like we did with LivePeer, where we were sort of the largest miner of the LivePeer Merkle mine token distribution. It might be governance, like actively participating in vote, voting in Maker, or in the future, we might be able to do that at Compound, 
uh, as well when they launched their governance token. We did a, you know, you might have heard there was a, recently there was a vote in the Digix DAO, which actually dissolved the DAO and returned the underlying capital to, to, to DAO token holders. And, you know- A collective we, rage quit, I guess. A col- exactly, a collective rage quit. And we've, you know, we've, we were familiar with that project since basically inception and uh, participated in that vote. And that was a very successful demonstration of, you know, in my opinion, of, of on-chain governance actually working to create a better outcome for everybody. So those kinds of activities are not really things that you directly do in traditional investing, either as a venture or a hedge fund investor. I mean, like hedge fund investors, they will probably like participate in governance, but this governance is just of a different nature, right? Like it's on chain, it's all implemented with smart contracts and digital assets. So, so Grassroot Network is, you know, our collective discipline of, of actively engaging networks. And I guess, you know, the, the reason why you would commit that resource and, and time to participate in that way is, is to kind of gain from that applied learning because we're all learning, right? And I think mm-hmm. one of the things that you guys have done very well is share that journey very openly about the things that, that you're learning as you're learning them. Absolutely. I, you know, as a technologist, right, because uh, I'm, you know, my background is, is, is that I'm a, I'm a builder, right? Um, I go very deep on, uh, on products. And as a product manager, I, I think about products. And so as an investor, when I'm investing in products, I, what I like to do is really get into the details, be a user of those products and what, what some people call dog fooding, right? But I am, you know, as I'm studying DAOs, I am a member of, of, of various DAO experiments. Like, you know, you mentioned rage quitting that came from Moloch DAO. I'm actually the third member of Moloch DAO. Oh, uh, wow, I didn't know that. Back from a little bit over a year ago. Or like with the NFTs uh, space that, that we're going to go into here, I'm actually a, a creator. Like I've created a bunch of works. I've been doing art all my life. And now I found a way on the blockchain to actually exhibit my work. And I've, I've even made a few sales, uh, which has been very exhilarating. Yeah, so let's, let's get into NFTs, uh, nifties. Um, and I, I saw that um, the artwork, it was uh, space time still art on rare events. So I guess people can go and rush to their nearest virtual art gallery and, and, and buy that, right? Uh, absolutely. If you, uh, so I'm an artist today, mainly on super rare and rareable. Um, and if you search for my handle, which is JBRUKH, you might be able to find me there. Um, but, you know, half of this is also research and and as i'm as i'm uh participating i'm kind of in the back of my mind i'm taking mental notes like what's working here what's not working like as a creator i also feel some of the frictions of these products um and i've lost sales actually um to people who weren't able to onboard as fast as we would perhaps like because they were traditional users without you know existing uh, accounts and i've also gone through the process of helping other artists because i run a a gallery called first edition xyz um to onboard from like zero experience with crypto into being on a platform like like rareable or, or super rare and being able to put their work and tokenize it online as well and that process is also very like full of friction so i you know i very viscerally like feel these frictions as i as i use the product so before we go into the asset and and where value might accrue and i know you've got some some thinking around that maybe we could just talk about 
the the stack you know the state of the stack um mm -hmm. for for nfts and i know you guys have an investment in, in dapper labs and, and i guess mm -hmm. you know the the role you see a stack like uh or, or a kind of set of products like that dapper feeding into the overall nft stack yeah so i think like if you look at I mean, so when we talk about NFTs, we're talking about non-fungible tokens, and those come in, in a number of different uh, subject areas. So some non-fungibles represent, you know, visual art. Some non-fungibles represent collectibles. Some non-fungibles represent land or, or digital land, like address space on urban network or um, virtual land in a, in a virtual world, like the central land or crypto voxels. And then there's like a long tail of non-fungibles that are maybe perhaps financial products and stuff like that. So when I, you know, when we talk about NFTs here, I think maybe um, the ones that are that people are mostly trading are in kind of the first two categories, right? Of like visual art and, and collectibles. There's reason to believe that visual art and collectibles, well, collectibles are already a huge space in, in the real world. Like if you look at Fortnite and, you know, digital asset sales are in, in the billions already. In the art world, you know, obviously you have kind of the traditional art world, but, you know, most people don't deal in that world. The price point for that world is, is very high. It's like millions to hundreds of millions of dollars um, with very few players. The, the application of blockchain within, like, as you put it, the stack, right? It's you know, in, in these first two categories is generally around either provenance of real world physical art, which no one has really cracked uh, very well so far. I was going to say, other... I mean, that, that's, that's a use case that, I mean, I've been in the space with Outlier for six years and, and there's been, you know, multiple instances around the idea of provenance in art and whether that was mm -hmm. ascribed scri by trends of Ocean Protocol or mm -hmm. um, provenance that the company, uh, so it'd be good to understand, you know, why, why that hasn't been cracked yet. I would say, you know, and I have, I spent most of my time in like the other application, which is like NFTs for, for virtual art or, or, or kind of ethereal, like non-physical art, right? Digital art. Um, but I would say that the reason it is just as early. I think the art world is, um, one of those industries that like, doesn't tend to incorporate technology very fast for better or for worse. Um, that said, I've been to a lot of, you know, non-fungibles focused conferences where you have industry veterans from, you know, the big auction houses, the big galleries coming in and like learning a lot. Right. So I do think it's on their radar. I do think it's an exciting space. I do think that people will, uh, there are some projects out in the market now, but I think people will, will crack this side of the market in a big way. What I'm here to talk about, though, is this other idea where you don't have a physical piece of art. When you say, like, I have a, I have a Mona Lisa, like, I know exactly where the Mona Lisa lives. When someone creates a piece of digital art, it's almost, like, not clear, like, where does this art live? Does it live on their computer? Does it live in the email that he sent the piece um, to you in, right? Does it, does it, there's no like one physical place where you can point to. And what the blockchain does, and this is like the core application, I think, is that it sort of localizes a piece 
of digital art. It finds it. It's like, well, if you own this digital asset on the blockchain, then you own that piece. And the way, and a lot of people have trouble with that idea. And so the way that the, the easy way to explain that in my mind is like, if you were to buy a piece of art in the real world today, you know, chances are you would get some, uh, a certificate of authenticity from the creator and you would get some rights. Like you would have the right to own it, to resell it. You might have the right to use the image in the art for commercial purposes. Whatever the creator has bestowed upon you as the customer is codified in that purchase transaction. And so when I buy an NFT on Ethereum, I sort of think of, of that transaction being that. You know, and in the future, we'll actually put like legal code around that and, and, and spell out those rights. But it's, we haven't done that yet. So and just very quickly, you mentioned Dapper. So, so Dapper has, uh, has made a big bet that, you know, collectibles on the blockchain, being able to collect, you know, these assets in this way where you own them in a strong way on the blockchain is a really compelling market. And um, they actually went and built their own blockchain with some very interesting new technology that supports kind of high throughput and is really quite tailored for those kinds of use cases that are that they envision are going to be uh, facing millions and millions of new mainstream users. And maybe for clarity, for the listeners, Dapper Labs was spun out of Axiom Zen, which was the creator of CryptoKitties, which is probably what most people associate to kind of NFT in the context of digital collectibles. That's right. And and CryptoKitties, uh, you know, their claim to fame was that at some point they uh, so many CryptoKitties were being traded on Ethereum that it clogged <laughs> Broke Ethereum. <laughs> and so uh, let's talk about that stack a little bit more uh, again before we move into the asset itself. So, you know, what what is required for this stack to enable this at a greater scale and perhaps to see it being adopted uh, more frequently by, you know, existing gaming platforms and, and where a lot of these virtual goods exist at the moment or very centralized platforms yeah well so if you're an issuer or creator right so if you're creating collectibles or if you're creating art that you want to put on the blockchain then you're sort of you're sort of in this thesis where like unlike that traditional art provenance this is like art that already exists you're sort of like making the case that hey you know what we're going to create a new market i'm going to take my digital work i'm going to put it on the blockchain and i'm going to go and sell it and show you that there is a market of buyers who want to consume art in this form and so what you need to to have as as an issuer or as a creator is you first need to have work naturally you need to go to the blockchain you need to have a method by which you convert your work into a digital asset so these are typically uh, what we call asset issuance platforms these are companies like super rare and maker's place um, and known origin and mintable and mint base and snark art and formerly rare bits and there's probably rareable right and there's a lot probably a lot more that we don't even know about um, but those platforms do exactly that you you become a creator there and you get to tokenize your work the next step is as soon as you have a body of work you want to go and sell it um, and so a lot of these platforms take the view that the way that you turn your work into, into essentially money, how you monetize, right, is through doing a, a marketplace kind of like mechanism. So either you're going to go auction your work or you're going to put it up for sale 
in a storefront. And that's sort of what OpenSea has done. They've looked across all of the different kinds of NFTs that are out there. They gather them all up into this like crypto eBay almost, right? Where you can go and look up any NFT that has ever been created on Ethereum. And the owners of those works can, can then sell them. Then once you sell your work, this is where it gets really, really interesting for creators. You know, what these platforms have figured out is that a strong incentive for issuers is to give them some of the profits from secondary sales. Now, what this means is like if you're a creator and you sell your work to, you know, Johnny and then Johnny sells your work to Bobby, you should get a little bit of a commission on that sale, even though it didn't happen between you and, uh, and, and someone else directly, right? And so if you look at the, the traditional world, there's actually states in the United States, I think, I think it's California, if I'm not mistaken, where there's actually a law that says if you do a secondary sale, you owe the original artist commission if they're like still living. And nobody ever has been able to, or nobody ever does this. Nobody ever, and nobody enforces this, this law. But you can actually create the conditions on the blockchain where you can do it. And the platforms that have done it have seen incredible interest from creators because, and this has actually happened to me as a creator. The other day I got an email and it says, oh, someone sold your work to someone else and you got 10% of that sale. And I'm like, wow, this is, this is just incredible. This is like giving this royalty stream directly to the artists forever, as long as those sales um, are happening on, on that platform. And so I think those are the three things that you need in the stack. You need to create, you need to tokenize, then you need to distribute work and find buyers, and then you need sort of the, the kind of like long-term view of how does your work evolve over time, and where do people see it, and how do they transact it, and what do you get from those secondary sales? If you can put together that stack, and if you can, I think in, in NFTs, we've shown that there's a very healthy supply side. So there's a lot of issuers. There's probably, I would estimate based on the, the data that I've seen, there's probably five to 10,000 people in the world who are very excited about being creators, specifically in the NFT space. And I think what, where we are right now is that we're waiting to form and, and deploying uh, different strategies to form this buy side, like these are the long-term collectors and holders and auction houses and museums that I think inevitably will come to appreciate this kind of digital art, but it's still like very early for them to go in, you know, at this point in time in 2020. But once that happens, what I think, what I think happens is this NFT market for art and collectibles becomes a new kind of market. And that's what's so exciting to me as an investor, because those are always the markets that create kind of the biggest and most outsized growth and returns. Yeah, and I guess, you know, it's easy to follow the logic that especially now uh, where all of our lives are being virtualized on a global scale, that virtual goods and assets and experiences are going to become more widely adopted. So as I've just recently done a podcast with Somnium who are uh, mm -hmm. looking at this in the context of VR. And, you know, I think the idea of hard coding uh, royalties and rights management into the asset itself is, is, is super interesting. And there's probably lots of precedents, both good and bad, that we can take from the music, in, the music industry and how it's 
functioning or dysfunctional, certainly from an, from an artist's perspective. Uh, I know uh, recently you shared some insights into the idea that even the artists themselves can tokenize themselves, not just their mm -hmm. art, but rights to all their future works. You know, do you, what problems do you see with that? I and mean, I, can, I can certainly see the benefits, but at the same time, that, that's one of the things that I have kind of this creeping concern about this idea that people begin to, you know, tokenize themselves. And, and you can see a lot of these yeah. conflicts emerge in the record industry, right? Absolutely. Um, so, so a few months ago, I published a piece called Art, Art Coins, the Next Token Model? And uh, this is just, I was looking at this phenomenon that's happening mainly uh, created by this company called Roll, which is doing a lot of social currency. And what that means is like an individual person can go on the platform, they can create a currency and then they can say, you know, this currency is redeemable for uh, some, some output that I, that I create, whether it's an hour of my time or it's some of my art, et cetera. So some portion of those social currency creators or issuers are actually visual artists. And what they've done is they said, oh, you can redeem my personal currency for my artwork. And I actually think that that forms a, a very interesting dynamic and one that is essentially inevitable in, in kind of the NFT space where, you know, you take a portfolio of someone's artwork you tokenize that portfolio. In other words, you create like an exchange rate between each work and, uh, you know, this is this many tokens, this is that many tokens. And then what starts to happen in theory is that this token starts to trade commensurate with how the market values that artist's work or their body of work or whatever is in that portfolio or at least their brand. And so what you end up getting is like tokens that are redeemable for work and the net effect of this is that your, the artist's work becomes more liquid. And this is the principal problem of, non, of the non-fungible space is that by virtue of being non-fungible, like every item is unique, it's much harder to get liquidity for a non-fungible asset than it is for a commoditized or fungible asset. And so a lot of projects, they look for ways that they can increase that liquidity. Is it having more buyers? Is it having an auction? Is it having a better marketplace? Is it tokenizing portfolios of works and then putting those tokens on Uniswap to get some initial liquidity going? Whatever the strategy is, it's all in service of, you know, I think liquidity. Now, what is interesting about art coins is that once you have a lot of different coins that represent different artists. I mean, think about like, hypothetically, you know, a coin for Vincent van Gogh and a coin for Leonardo da Vinci and so on and so forth. Well, what you can then do is you can put these coins into a portfolio and you can almost have an index on different digital art. And I, and I think that's very interesting because it starts to pull in uh, digital visual art on the blockchain into this idea that, hey, this is actually an asset class. And this asset class is now available to retail consumers where it wasn't really before. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the idea of indices around NFTs is, is super interesting. And you could imagine it's going to be a, a natural evolution. So, you know, at the moment when we're thinking about NFTs in the context of digital art, am I correct in understanding that they're usually quite static? Is it a natural conclusion that as things like 
VR and AR take off that increasingly we'll be talking about experiences, experiences that kind of manifest as a consequence of a combination of virtual goods or in a building or combined with music or whatever it may be. It, does that feel like a natural conclusion to you that it becomes almost experiential art rather than you know, something you just own and can swap? So, so I, I think, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. I think we're definitely heading in that direction. Um, there's a little bit of progress in that direction right now. Actually, one issuance platform that I didn't mention in my list was async.art, which launched you know, literally some weeks ago. And one thing that they've done is they've said, like, we're going to innovate on the NFT space a little bit and make them, you know, take them from things that are relatively static, either, you know, just a still image or, or an animated GIF into something with many different layers and different artists can own the layers and different artists can also change the layers. And so the person who owns the kind of the full work, what they own is all of the layers kind of juxtaposed together, but those, that work can evolve and change over time. So the one example that they like to give is, you know, you can create like a Mona Lisa and then you could connect it to a feed of Bitcoin price. And if Bitcoin is going up, Mona Lisa is going to smile. If Bitcoin is going down, Mona Lisa is going to have a frown and, and, and so on and so forth, right? So that's an example application. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. Like, I think this goes much further. We're seeing the development of different virtual worlds. I think just today, CryptoVoxels uh, tweeted that they sold the last piece of land in Origin City, which, which was like, um, I forget how many plots of land, but it was, it was a fair amount, thousands. You know, and uh, and you have things like Decentraland launching just just weeks ago, um, and starting to also trying to build up like an audience where people could come together in a virtual world and have different experiences. I think it's only a matter of time before like those secondary experience, second order experiences, can also be tokenized in various ways. How do you think NFTs can be increasingly generated by machine learning and AI. And the reason why I ask that is it, it kind of feels, it feels like an obvious go to market for me that you've got this gaming industry at the moment. It takes billions of dollars to bring mm -hmm. a game to market way more than a Hollywood movie production, many months, years. Um, and a lot of the stuff that they have to build, for example, the, the environments around a character could be, could be reused. It could be repurposed. And you could potentially shorten the time from bringing a game to market because you can just focus on maybe the character and the narrative rather than having to build a, an environment entirely from scratch each time. I'm not sure if that does or doesn't happen, by the way. But the idea that there could be almost a, a library of worlds and assets that could just be repurposed by and, and kind of rebuilt by machine learning to kind of accelerate that pathway feels like a... Uh, an obvious target market to me. Yeah, um, and and you see again, you see some of the early examples of this in the space today. Like you know, even you, you we mentioned CryptoKitties. CryptoKitties, in the sense, is a generative artwork. Like CryptoKitties are created by algorithm, and also the action of sort of breeding two kitties together and crossing their DNA, right? Or another project might be, as an example, might be uh, Black Cities. The Black Cities are little collectibles of different kinds of buildings in the world. They include like skyscrapers from New York, but they also include randomly generated kind of generative collectibles, right? That are, that are created 
you know, just by an algorithm. And so I totally see that, you know, as the world moves more and more into, you know, virtual space, like, you know, we're in the middle of our, of the coronavirus pandemic, everyone is sitting at home and kind of communicating virtually. And, and in general, our world is, is, uh, is moving in that direction. You know, you can see these kinds of generative works or AI works just popping up to, you know, to provide different assets. And, and those things might be an interesting way of generating revenue. On the other hand, if you're not like, you know, a lot of times like people will pay more money for assets that they feel are like very unique, very scarce. Uh, again, it goes back to that idea of non-fungibility that every item is just very special and unique. And so I wonder long-term if like automatically generated assets are as valuable as something like extraordinarily unique that one person creates one time. Um, but I guess we'll see. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting debate. The idea that how you price craftsmanship and is there a premium placed on a human uh, human's creation more than an artificial kind of creation? Is that going to flip at some point or are we going to increasingly value the creation of of, of a human being. Jake, look, it's been fascinating talking to you. It's been a pleasure to be able to go deep because I know we could have spoken about any number of subjects. It's great to get get into the weeds on NFTs. Um, <laughs> where can people follow you and, and, and find out more of your thinking? Sure. Um, follow me on Twitter. It's at J-B-R-U-K-H. And I also have a, a Substack mailing list where I send my, my articles and that's Brookman, B-R-U-K-H-M-A-N, dot substack.com. Great. Look, thanks for coming on and probably going to have you on again at some point in the future. My pleasure, Jamie. And thank you so much for for having me and and asking great uh, questions. No problem. My pleasure. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.